Well, welcome to Bible class at St. Paul's as we continue our study of Galatians, uh, welcoming our KFUO audience and all who are in attendance. We're going to begin today. We covered the first few verses of chapter 2 last week, but we need to read through them again to get the context. So turn to Galatians chapter 2. And we're going to read the first five verses again. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, verse 6, that's where we're going to pick up. Okay. From those who appeared to be something, okay, uh, of some manner then, who were of some manner then, it makes no difference to me because literally the words are God does not receive men in the face. Okay? Literally, that's what it says. What it means is God shows no partiality. Okay? That's what he's trying to say. All right, so Paul has gone to Jerusalem to make this, uh, to, to go, and it's basically before the apostles. Basically before the apostles. Now, he doesn't, re he doesn't really refer to them as the apostles. He refers to them as those who were supposed to be influential. This is one of the reasons that Paul is always called arrogant, okay? Uh, this is one of the times. But the thing is that um, they were influential because these were the apostles that had spent their, were with Jesus throughout his ministry. Paul was going to them to share the gospel that he had been proclaiming, to make sure he had not run in vain that this was not all for naught. Okay, and so he goes to them, but he acknowledges, in spite of what they have been in the past, God shows no partiality, and he doesn't. Just because you hold a certain title and have done certain things, accomplished certain things, that makes no never mind to God. He shows no partiality. Okay. And he says, to me, those who appeared to be influential added nothing. In other words, when he presented the gospel that he was proclaiming, they added nothing. Okay. They added nothing to what he already had and knew, okay? But on the contrary, it says, on the contrary, seeing that um, I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, as Peter 
to the circumcised. Okay? For he who worked in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised worked in me for an apostleship that's implied to the Gentiles. All right, so there was an acknowledgement by all that God had worked through Peter to bring the gospel to the circumcised, to Jews, and that the same God had worked through Paul for an apostleship to the Gentiles, okay, to the Gentiles. Now, we've got to finish this, and we'll tie it all together. And knowing that the grace given to, was given to me, James and Cephas and John, who appeared to be pillars, gave the right hand of fellowship to me and to Barnabas in order that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. <clears throat> now, several things about this. This meeting is mentioned nowhere in the book of Acts. It's not there. This is a unique account. And it seems to be a gentleman's handshake agreement that basically Peter's ministry was to the circumcised and Paul's was to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. But that can't be a hard and fast rule. It was not a hard and fast agreement because throughout Paul's ministry and, and uh, his trips, his three missionary journeys, whenever he comes to a town that has a synagogue, that's where he begins. Okay? That's where he begins. So he was preaching to the Jews. Now, the vast majority of, her, of his hearers were ultimately Gentiles because many of the Jews rejected the gospel. The same thing can be said of Peter. It was not exclusively only that he preached to Jews because the vision in Acts chapter 10 of foods clean and unclean, and immediately when it was over, he was called to go to the house of Cornelius, who were Gentiles, and he preached to them. So this was not something that was set in stone. Peter was to only go to Jews. And Paul was only to go to Gentiles. That's simply not the case. <clears throat> As a couple of commentators have said, we don't know exactly what happened here because there's no recorded minutes or a document that was published. You know, in Acts chapter 15, there was a letter that was sent to the churches as a result of their agreement. But there's nothing like that here. A couple of commentators said they gave him the right hand of fellowship, but they had their fingers crossed with their left. Okay? So that was the gentleman's agreement. We know nothing else about it. As I say, there is no recorded. It's only here. It's only here. Nothing in Acts. 
about a handshake agreement. And to keep the peace. Okay? Because there were those that were trying to undermine Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. Those false brothers that had slipped in to steal away their freedom, as the verse said. The final verse, only uh, that we should remember the poor which uh, we hastened to do, okay? We hasten to do. So that's all we know about this. That's all we know about this. The next account is the dispute between Peter and Paul. Very famous, uh, very famous when Cephas came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face that he was not uh, condemned and, and that I condemned him. He was being condemned. Before, for before those uh, came from James, he ate with the Gentiles. When they came, he separated himself. He backed away himself, fearing those from the circumcision. All right. Now, a couple of things. So Peter goes to Antioch, <clears throat> and Paul said he opposed him to his face. We always assume that this happened after this gentleman's agreement. Okay? James sent some people. We should not try to identify the people sent by James as identical to the circumcision party. Okay? Now, there may have been some overlap, but we shouldn't identify them as the same. Okay? Very interesting word then. For he uh, disassembled with them and the rest of the Jews, so that Barnabas, Barnabas, even Barnabas, was carried away by their hypocrisy. Now notice here, he's not accusing um, Peter of sin, but of hypocrisy. Because the next word is a fascinating word. And why did he do this? But when I saw that he was not... What does your translation say? In step? Straightforward? Okay, here's what this word actually means in classical Greek. It means to put on a mask and play a part. Put on a mask and play a part. In other words, play a part that's not in keeping with yourself. You're different. So he's accusing Peter of knowing the truth, but putting on a mask and playing a part that's not in keeping, not in step with, not straightforward 
with the gospel. Okay? It says with the truth of the gospel. Okay? And I told uh, Cephas in front of them all. Now here's, here's what he says. If you, being a Jew, act as a Gentile and not as a Jew, or you live as a Gentile, not as a Jew, then how come you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay? So if you, Peter, who are a Jew, act like a Gentile, eat with them, have association with them, then why do you try to force the Gentiles to act like Jews? Okay? That's the question. All right, now let's, let's talk about this uh, now that we've been through it. Okay? There are several things going on here that are pointed out. Paul is trying to defend the apostolic ministry that had been given to him to preach gospel to the Gentiles. And, you know, that was at the basis of this gentleman's agreement. They acknowledged that God had given Peter the ministry of the gospel to the Jews, and Paul had been given the ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul is defending that. Now, the apostles had to know that if they uh, rightfully agreed that a Gentile did not have to be circumcised to be a Christian. They also had to know that at some point, this was going to impact how Jews and Gentiles associated with one another. And the term for it is commonly table fellowship, how they came together because table fellowship implies that when you get together for a meal, you are, there is an acceptance and a unity. The Jews would not practice table fellowship with the Gentiles. At the very basis of it was the fact that they were always afraid that the Gentiles were involved with idolatry, and they did not want to be associated with that. Or they were simply violating the law. The Gentiles, then, and we see this, this table fellowship all the way back to Jesus' ministry. Pharisees, scribes, just blew up when Jesus chose to eat with tax collectors and sinners. Because he was having fellowship with unclean people. Gentiles. And they objected to it. Now, we always look at this account of this conflict between Peter and Paul, and we think to ourselves, all right, Paul is right, Peter should not be playing both sides of the fence. But some introduce another concept here. And we can talk about that. 
notice that certain people were sent from James. And then Peter backed away. And some have proposed that since this gentleman's agreement was that Peter would predominantly go to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles, James was afraid if Peter fraternized and had too much fellowship with the Gentiles, it was going to hurt his ministry with the Jews. In other words, he would not be as effective in his teaching and preaching. He wouldn't be if it was circulating that he was constantly having fellowship with Gentiles. It would create a problem for his ministry. And that when James sent this message through these people to Peter, that's why Peter backed away. Paul saw it as an infraction of the agreement. The agreement was <clears throat> that Jews didn't, Gentiles didn't have to be circumcised to become Christian. But the whole matter of fellowship has really not been dealt with. And we don't think it's based on dietary laws. <laughs> we don't think that at all. But it was the general principle that Jews can't be around Gentiles because of the factor of idolatry and the factor of sexual impurity. Those were the big things. We're back to where we've talked about before. The fact is, this is the early church, and they were having to deal with things they'd never had to deal with before. They never had to deal with issues like this before. This was new territory for everybody, for every person, and they had to work through this to make sure they got it right. Did they make mistakes? Yes. But God was watching over to see to it that this thing went in the right direction because the gospel was for everyone. And they didn't, Paul was not going to let anybody get in the way of that. When he's referring to those guys as those that appear to be influential, what he's simply saying is, God gave me the apostleship to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. And it doesn't matter whether Peter likes it or not, that's what I'm going to do. This is from God. So whether he's in influential, has titles or not, doesn't make any difference. I'm going to preach the gospel as God wants me to do. And any time there was the smallest infraction of the gospel, when, when things were being added, works were being added, then that's what upset Paul the most. That's what upset Paul the most. So this, this, uh, this confrontation can, as I say, some have looked at, and Paul was right. Nobody's saying Paul was wrong. But there is this factor, what if Peter needed to watch who he is associating with in order to be an effective witness to Jews? And that's probably a valid point. Yes? Well, that's kind of supported by just before this sequence in Acts as him going to Cornelius, and Peter going to Cornelius into their house and I don't know whether it was a year before, just before. Yes, and see, we don't know 
if Peter went to Cornelius' house before this or after this? We don't know the sequence. We don't know the chronological sequence of what was happening. Yes. Yes. Um, now we gotta we gotta remember we gotta remember that there were two Jameses. One was the brother of John, and he was killed by Herod. It's in Acts chapter twelve. The one who became pretty much the leader in Jerusalem was James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus. And he becomes very predominant. Very predominant. Yes. If you let it, okay, if you let it, that's a wonderful thing about being retired, I don't have to mess with that anymore. I don't care, okay? Don't care. But it can, there are people that just can't handle that and have actually left the church because they got sick of the politics. They have left the church. And that's not right. But God always takes care of his church. And we can see his hand here as we go through, it becomes more and more defined. And it's always defined in the direction of that the gospel is for everybody. The gospel is for everybody. No one is excluded. And anything that would be added to the gospel that excludes people, Paul is pointing out, is a problem. And that's what we get into in verse 15, because the next verses are going to talk about what's really at stake here. What's really at stake here. We are Gentiles by nature, by birth and not Gentile sinners. That first statement you may think is referring to the Jews, but since it says we, and Paul is speaking, we believe that the reference is he was a Jew, but he's now a Christian Jew. We, the Christian Jews, and the Gentile sinners, okay? And then he goes on. Knowing that a man is not justified from the works of law except through faith in Jesus Christ. And we believed in Jesus Christ in order that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not from works of law, because from works of law, no flesh will be justified. This is the passage you point to if somebody wants to believe in works. Three times it says, no works. Justification is used three times. Three times, no works. None. The first phrase is interesting. No man is justified from works of law except through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? Except. 
In other words, no one is justified by works. The only exception is faith in Jesus Christ. But no human being is justified by works. Now, what are the works? Not works. It's works of the law. Okay. What works of the law are being talked about? It's certainly not the ceremonial law of sacrifices, and it's not the food laws. In all likelihood, this is the moral law. The Ten Commandments. The moral law. Okay. By keeping the and, and and here's what Paul is condemning. He's not just condemning the person that counts works. It's broader than that. He is condemning the concept that God ever said that the law was a way to salvation. He is disputing that the law was ever given to save anybody. The law was given after he had saved them and brought them out of Egypt. And he gave the law in order to say, now that you believe in me, here is how you live. Okay? He did not give the Ten Commandments so that you could earn eternal life. It was never given as a way of salvation. The only way of salvation was faith. Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We see that over and over again. Circumcision was not a work. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant of faith. Okay? Sign of the covenant of faith. God never meant for anybody to try to save themselves because he knew it couldn't be done. Not after the fall into sin. Okay? <clears throat> the only exception is through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul says, not from the works of law, three times here. He's trying to make the point. You cannot do this. Three times he says it. He talks about faith in Jesus Christ three times. Okay? The word, to be, the word to be justified and the word for righteous are the same words in Greek. When we say to be justified, we are saying that it is a, what we call a forensic justification. God declares us right with him. We don't earn being right with him. God declares us right with him on the basis of Jesus Christ. We are declared right with God because of Jesus Christ, because he was right with God and he is our substitute. So his substitutionary atonement is accredited to us when we believe in Christ. And we are declared to be right with God. Okay? We don't usually even use the word made right with God or made righteous because we're not really made righteous, we're still sinful. We're declared righteous. Okay? We're declared righteous. So this is one of the most powerful verses in the entire New Testament that proclaims justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ. There is no wiggle room here. There is no way to add works here. There's nothing. It's faith in Jesus Christ and nothing more.
Okay. So, let's go on. Seeking to be justified in Christ. If we are found, if seeking to be justified in Christ, if we are found uh, to be sinners, then is Christ a servant of sin? Okay, this is kind of an absurd question. If we're seeking to be justified through Jesus Christ, and we're sinners, does that make Jesus Christ a participant in sin? And Paul uses the same Greek words he uses all over the New Testament, by no means, okay? Absolutely not. Just because we are sinners and we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ, that doesn't make Christ a participant in sin. We are declared right. He took our sins upon himself, but that doesn't make him a servant of sin. Okay? Does not make him a servant of sin. This next verse is very interesting. If I tear this down and again build it up, then I am proven to be a transgressor. All right, what in the world does that mean? <clears throat> it means this. If I, who have torn down the law and said this is not a means of salvation, not a means of salvation, but then I build the law back up again, then I'm a transgressor. I'm basically saying I'm still in my sin. Because I built, I, I tore down the law, but if I build it up again as a way of salvation, then I'm still in sin. Okay. And I'm still in sin. For I died to the law through the law in order that I might live to God. Now, that phrase, for I died to the law through the law, nobody knows what that means. Nobody. It's a guessing game. The only thing that helps us is the next phrase. For I have been crucified with Christ. Now that helps us some. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, we died to sin. Our sins were crucified with him. And this is all tied up with our baptism. When we are baptized into Christ, we are crucified with Christ. Our sin dies with Christ. That may be what this is getting at. Since the law is what shows us our sin, Okay? Since the law is what shows our maybe through Christ's death on the cross, we died to the law. Okay? It can no longer condemn us. Can no longer condemn us. And of course, if we have been crucified with Christ, as Paul goes on to say in Romans, then we will live with Christ, which is exactly what this says. I have died. I died to the law, through the law, 
in order that I might live to God. And then he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Okay? Now, verse 20. Verse 20 is another verse that many people have memorized and know well. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I have been crucified with Christ. Now that ties in to what we just talked about. Okay. Okay. Ties into it. Because we've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Christ is reshaping us, remolding us into his own image, into the person he wants us to be. So we no longer live for ourselves, you know. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Christ is now working in us. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, that's now. We're not talking about heaven. Now. I live by faith in the Son of God. And then he says, why? Because he loved me and gave himself me. <clears throat> That's the motivation. That's the motivation. So instead of living for self, now we're living for the one who died and rose again for us, who loved us, who gave himself for us. And in baptism, we are <clears throat> united with him, <clears throat> not only in his crucifixion, <clears throat> but also in his resurrection. That's our motivation for life. That's what we're about. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If righteousness is possible through the law, if you can earn your way into God's favor so that he rewards you with eternal life, then we don't need Jesus Christ. We don't need him. If we can do that on our own, we don't need Jesus Christ. But as Luther always says, the greatest blasphemy of God is to say to him, I can save myself. Okay? Because God has said all over, oh no, you can't. Okay? When works righteousness is promoted, then you don't need Jesus Christ. You can do it yourself. You can do it yourself. So Paul is exactly right in saying, then Christ died in vain, or for no purpose, because it wasn't necessary. It wasn't necessary. That's how serious he looks at this. Not only does it pervert the gospel. It perverts God's whole plan of salvation. God did this for nothing. That's how seriously Paul is looking at this. Now, we've been through the section of the book now where Paul talks a lot about himself, his ministry, his meetings with others, his silent years, 
from verse 15 on, it's all very theological, okay? And we will see that. And he goes on to expound more about the gospel message. He is still upset that this has occurred. Because if you look at the first verse of chapter 3, it begins, O foolish Galatians. Okay? O foolish Galatians. And then he continues. Okay, questions, comments? Yes. Yeah. In lots of cultures... There are practices that do not conform to the gospel. So when a Christian missionary goes into one of those situations, he has a twofold problem. He's got to present not only the gospel to them, which is always difficult because it does not allow for works, it's a gift. But then that missionary also has to look at their culture and what they're doing because the very things they're doing in their culture may be a direct violation of the gospel. Okay? A direct violation of the gospel. It's incompatible with the gospel. So you not only have to teach them the gospel, then you have to gently begin to show them where the things they've done all their lives do not mesh with the gospel. That's what Paul was having to do with the Jews. They had done this for life. They had done this for life. And he had to not only present the gospel, but then show them how these other things were in conflict with the gospel and they should put them away. And that's the way it is in any culture. There are also always things, and we've got them in our own culture. If somebody comes to faith in Christ, and we know them and they're living in this world today, they may be involved in things in their lives that are in direct conflict with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it takes time for them to learn. Yes. Well, they're wrong. (laughs) Faith is not a work. It is a creation of God in the heart. Faith is nothing more than an acceptance or a trust in the promises of God. And it is not a work. There are other people also believe repentance is a work. And you have to be so repentant before God will forgive you. Well, that's also putting the onus on us as if we could earn it. We're never repentant enough. If we were, we'd stop sinning. And that doesn't happen. So be careful. Uh, It's awful easy in our human pride to try to declare certain things to be things that we do that contribute to our salvation. And it's just not the case. Okay. We'll pick up with chapter 3 next week. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.